Welcome to the Bridge to God's Word podcast with Carla Unseth, a linguistic consultant for missionaries working in Bible translation. We invite you to visit us at www.bridgetogodsword.org to learn more about Carla's ministry. Now, here's linguistic consultant Carla Unseth. Hello and welcome to Building a Bridge to God's Word. This is Carla Unseth. Thank you for joining us this month. And if you remember, we are continuing in our roadmap to the Bible. So we've been walking through the Bible, looking at some of the major themes to see how it all fits together. And if you remember from last time, we left on a high note, a note of hope. God had given a promise to David that a son of his would reign eternally on the throne. And he also reiterated the promises given to Abraham, specifically that the nation of Israel would be a great nation and would have a great land. So when we left, we saw that Solomon seemed to be fulfilling those promises. Solomon's story is found in the book of 1 Kings, and just as a note, the book of First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles actually tell the same stories. So if you're going to read straight through the Bible or through the Old Testament, you would hear the same stories twice. And we'll talk more about that later as we get into other kings beyond Solomon. But Solomon was the son of David, so it seemed natural that he would be the one that God was talking about. And as we read about Solomon, it does seem like he fulfills those promises. So the very first thing that we know about Solomon is that God offered to give him anything and he asked for wisdom. It shows us great strength of character in Solomon and it shows us something else as well. If we look back to the Garden of Eden, the first man, Adam, was given a choice, a choice between following God or following his own desire, his own desire for wisdom. And he chose to take wisdom for himself by eating the fruit from the tree. But here Solomon makes the opposite decision. Rather than asking for things for himself, he admits his weakness and he asks God for wisdom. So it seems like maybe Solomon is not only a great king, but he's also a sort of second Adam. He makes the right choice. And we also see along those lines that he builds a magnificent temple for the Lord. And if we continue by looking at 1 Kings 4, 20 through 29, we can see many more of his accomplishments. It says, the people of Judah and Israel were as numerous as the sand on the seashore. So first of all, that's the answer to the promise of a large people. They ate, they drank, and they were happy. And Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the Euphrates River to the land of the Philistines, as far as the border of Egypt. These countries brought tribute and were Solomon's subjects all his life. So here we have the large land. Solomon's daily provisions were 30 cores of finest flour and 60 cores of meal, 10 head of stall-fed cattle, 20 of pasture-fed cattle, and 100 sheep and goats, as well as deer, gazelles, roebucks, and choice fowl. For he ruled over all the kingdoms west of the Euphrates River, from Tifsa to Gaza, and had peace on all sides. During Solomon's lifetime, Judah and Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, lived in safety, everyone under their own vine and under their own fig tree. 
Solomon had 4,000 stalls for chariot horses and 12,000 horses. The district governors, each in his month, supplied provisions for King Solomon and all who came to his table. They saw to it that nothing was lacking. They also brought to the proper place their quotas of barley and straw for the chariot horses and other horses. So it looks like we have great prosperity, peace and prosperity through all Israel. We have the land and the people that was promised. But if we look closely at these passages, we begin to see something else that doesn't seem quite as good. When you read the list of Solomon's accomplishments, a good Jewish student would also see a similarity with Deuteronomy 17, 14 through 17. So if we look back at that passage, this is God's requirements for a king. And he says, when you enter the land, the Lord your God is giving you and have taken possession of it and settled in it. And you say, let us set a king over us like all the nations around us. So first of all, God knew that this would happen. So continuing in verse 15, it says, be sure to appoint over you a king the Lord your God chooses. He must be from among your fellow Israelites. Do not place a foreigner over you, one who is not an Israelite. So, so far we're good. Says the king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself. Um, oops, okay, so he had a lot of horses. Or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. Again, oops, if you read farther in 1 Kings 4, you see that Solomon went to Egypt often to get the things that he had. For the Lord has told you, you are not to go back that way again. Verse 17 says, he must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. So again, two more. Uh, doesn't seem quite right. Um, Solomon looks good on the outside, but in reality, he's breaking all of these laws that God has set out. And I think what we can see and learn from Solomon is that we have to make the choice to follow and submit to God every day. Asking for wisdom once isn't enough. It's easy to be led astray. So we have to continue to seek God and to submit to him to be truly wise. But from a storyline perspective, we've been looking at a picture of a potential promised king. So all of these promises have said that there's going to be this promised king. And it looked so much like Solomon would be that. But these failings are kind of like cracks in that portrait, in that picture of the promised king. Something is wrong. And as Solomon's life comes to an end, things actually begin to fall apart. God tells Solomon that because of his unfaithfulness, his kingdom will be torn from his sons. And at the same time, there's a man named Jeroboam who gets a prophecy that he will be the next king and he's not Solomon's son. So when Solomon actually dies, his son Rehoboam rises to the throne, but immediately there's problems. Not from Jeroboam, actually. He sort of is biding his time, but Rehoboam makes a pretty bad governmental decision. The people ask him to lighten their load. Solomon actually oppressed the people fairly heavily. Um, and so the people ask Rehoboam to lighten their load. And instead, he says that he will double the load or he will increase the burden of his father. This, I, you know, this is one of those things where who knows what he was thinking. This is clearly a bad political move. But anyway, <laughs> Jeroboam then sweeps in to offer an alternative. And the result is that the kingdom splits into two. Ten of the tribes follow Jeroboam, 
while two tribes, the tribes of Judah and Benjamin, stay faithful to David's line. So suddenly, a mere generation after David's death, all the hopes and dreams that were in Solomon are shattered. The kingdom is split. The promise is clearly not fulfilled. Though there were a people and a land, there was not an eternal king and not a worldwide blessing as a result. So how will God fulfill this promise? It takes many hundreds of years before God does actually fulfill his promise. And there's a lot of suffering and heartache for the Israelites during that time. But in the meantime, before we get to all of that, let's look at how the kingdom is structured now. So as I said at the beginning, the stories of the kings of Israel and Judah are told in 1st and 2nd Kings and 1st and 2nd Chronicles. So if you read those, you'll see the same stories in Chronicles repeated, told in a slightly different way than in Kings. Those books show that we have two kingdoms. The southern kingdom is called Judah. The capital of Judah is Jerusalem, and all the kings of Judah come from David's family line. The northern kingdom is called Israel. The capital of Israel is Samaria, and the kings of Israel are not from David's family line. So as you read through Kings and Chronicles, there's a few things that you can look for to help you keep all this straight and help you understand these kings. First, make note of whether they ruled in Israel or Judah because they kind of go back and forth. So if you, if you look at whether it's Israel or Judah, that will help you keep straight which kings these are. And you can also look at how long they reigned, and that gives you an idea also of, well, who was reigning in Israel, who also was reigning in Judah, so you can keep that straight. Then the author of these books really focuses on three questions for each king, and that is, did the king worship God? Did the king rid Israel of idolatry? And then also, was this king faithful to the covenant? So if you look at these things, you'll get a good evaluation of the king. Were they a good king or were they a bad king? Did they serve the Lord or not? So I'll give you a little hint. There are about 20 kings in each kingdom, Israel and Judah. And in Israel, there were no good kings at all. None of them actually did these things. None of them worshiped God rid Israel of idolatry, and was faithful to the covenant. But in the southern kingdom of Judah, there were eight kings that did these things, that did seek to serve the Lord, that did attempt at least to rid the land of idolatry, and did remain faithful to God's covenant. So we obviously still have a sin problem. This is our problem from the very beginning, that the whole Bible is showing the solution to the sin problem. But rather than getting better, it's getting worse. Having a king has definitely not solved the sin problem, not even a great king like David or a wise king like Solomon. So what is God going to do? What's going to happen next? Throughout this time, there is one thing that God does to reveal little pieces of his plan and to call people back to repentance, and that is that he speaks through prophets. These prophets during this time call out injustices among the people and call them back to covenant faithfulness. So some of the prophets that spoke during the times of the kings are Isaiah and Jeremiah. Those are two major ones. Then also some minor prophets or prophets that wrote shorter books are Hosea, Joel, Amos, Micah, Habakkuk, and Zephaniah. So you've probably heard those names before if you've done other Bible study in the Old Testament or read through the Bible. 
But I want to take a minute to look at the structure of the Old Testament because it's going to make more sense of how these things fit together. So first of all, the Old Testament is divided into five major sections and they are the Pentateuch, which is five books, books of history, which is 12 books, books of poetry, which is five books, major prophets, another five books, and minor prophets, another 12 books. So to explain these a little bit more, the first section is the Pentateuch. That's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Those are books that are grouped together because they were written by Moses. They teach the law. They're really foundational for the rest of the Old Testament. So those are kind of grouped together. The Pentateuch or also can be called the Torah. Then the next 12 books, like I said, are the books of history. So this is where the story is told after Moses' death. The rest of the story of Israelite history is told in these 12 books. And that's Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. That is the books of history. So the next books, the next three sections, are books that happen during the time of history. So for example, the next five are books of poetry. They are Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. So those five books take place during the time of history. For example, Job takes place probably in Genesis. Psalms, most of them, a lot of them are written by David. That would be in the first and second Samuel. Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon are all written by King Solomon. So we find those take place during the time of first Kings and first Chronicles. Those are all grouped together because they are poetry. The next five is major prophets, and those are Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, and Daniel. And then the next 12 after that is minor prophets, and those are Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. So all of the prophets, well, first I'll say the difference between the major prophets and the minor prophets is that the major prophets are longer. It doesn't have to do with what they said or how important they were in history. It really just has to do with the fact that those books are longer. So all the major prophets and minor prophets take place during this time of kings and beyond, all the way to the end of the Old Testament, when the Israelites actually are exiled and return. We'll talk more about that later. But all of these prophets spoke during that time. So I'll admit to you that I had planned to go through the Bible storyline a little quicker with this podcast. But as I've gotten into it, and especially now in the Kings, I realized that I really want to take time to actually look at things rather than just zooming through. And that's especially true of these prophets. The prophets is where God continues to reveal his plan for the people of Israel and for the whole world. So I want to be able to look at those different things. What is God revealing? And if we go through too quickly, we're going to miss that. So I'm going to end here for this month. And next month, we'll look at what happens to Judah and Israel. We're going to stop with them split. And we are going to see next month that things go downhill from here. (laughs) Splitting isn't the worst thing that can happen. So we'll also look then at what these prophets, what God is teaching through the prophets. Because the truth is that at this point, we can see that 
we can't do it on our own. As we see this continuing destruction, it will point to the fact that we are unable to solve the sin problem through any, any method of religion, law, government, or any other way of structuring society. It will really be driven home that we must look to God and his plan. So with that, I hope that you'll join us again next time to hear more of what happens to Israel and Judah and how God uses that to continue to reveal his plan for the whole world. So thanks so much for listening to Building a Bridge to God's Word. <music>